Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. We've been looking at uh, the life of Christ in the Gospels. And uh, boy, it's, it really is a 30,000 <laughs> 30, foot view. Uh, and, and it's just so much in this. Last week, and one of the things I said, and I, I think this is so important to understand, is how do we view the life of Christ? How do we view the life of Christ in comparison to our own lives? Do we think that somehow we are able to live the life of Christ? That we can do this. And I think the reality of it is the Lord demonstrates that he's one of a kind. He's unique. And ultimately, as we're following him, we can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens us, right? It's, it's not our strength. It's the strength of God in us. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes to live within us. And then the Holy Spirit in us begins to empower us to do the very things that he demands of us, that he commands of us. It's his strength. It's him. First thing we looked at was the demonstration of his power or the activity of grace. You see all the miracles and you see all the things that the Lord did and the way that he treated people. So, so amazing to watch, right? Even from the, from the children to those who were classified as sinners, <laughs> which we all fall into that category. The demonstration of truth and the message of grace and, and the fact that he would preach repentance, a change of mind. They would preach that you need to believe in the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, to have your minds changed as to what you need. The law was given as an example, as a, as a way to show our need of a Savior, not a ladder in order to climb. Today I want to take a little bit of time and look at the demonstration of mercy. Mercy. The sacrificial nature of grace. You realize when we're called to walk with the Lord, we're called into a life of sacrifice. Do you realize that? We know, I think we know that. And it's in his strength, in his power, in his timing. Whether it's love one another, whether it's place the other's interests, the other individual's interests above your own, whatever it may be, it's a dying to self, which is a call to discipleship ultimately, because as we follow the Lord and as God in us begins to work in such a way where we are being transformed, where our minds are being renewed as we get into the word of God and we begin to think the thoughts of God, we begin to understand what it means to walk with God. In the midst of that, you will find if you're truly walking by the Spirit, that you then are walking in love for others, which means that there's sacrifice involved. It can be financial sacrifice. It can be time. It doesn't matter. But the fact of the matter is, is when God is living his life in and through us, you're going to find that for us, there is sacrifice. And folks, hear me on this. There's a joy in it. This isn't drudgery. Oh, I can't believe I have to do that again. You know. No. There's a joy. Because one of the, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, but one of the characteristics of love is joy. And so in the midst of the walk, there's an experiencing of God in a fresh way, and therefore there's joy. I want to just kind of walk through a few things with you in terms of the, the last days of the Lord. There's so much in this. Uh, And I'm just going to highlight some things, and then we're going to look at, with specificity, 
the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and the crucifixion itself. In John chapter 11, verse 38 and following, there's this amazing story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And in John eleven twenty five 25 through 26, Jesus says to Mary, because remember, the Lord uh, was going, was told that Lazarus was sick, and he purposefully waited a couple days. <laughs> Don't you love when the Lord just does things on his time instead of ours? But he did it on purpose, because he knew Lazarus was going to die, and he knew he was going to raise him again from the dead. And he, he wanted to exhibit his power in a way that was according to the Father's will. He never did anything out of his own initiative except lay down his own life. But he says to Mary, because Mary's distraught, Martha's distraught. And in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Wow. Folks, that's the question of the ages, isn't it? It's kind of like when he's before Pontius Pilate and Pilate says, what is truth? It's a question of the ages. Do you believe? Do you recognize Jesus is the truth? Do we realize that he alone is able to provide salvation? Well, the interesting thing is he raises uh, Lazarus from the dead. And what do the religious leaders begin to try to do from that moment forward? They try to kill him. Now, folks, think about this. Our flesh is so wicked that we would rather stomp out something good than have to admit that we're wrong, that we're sinful, that we need to change. See, it's real easy to point the finger at the religious leaders. It's, I mean, you know, Pharisees are Pharisees. We all kind of understand the hypocritical nature of the Pharisees. And it's real easy to point our fingers at them, but do we understand how wicked our own flesh really is? They want to kill him. They would rather kill him and destroy him. I mean, he rose somebody from the dead. Think about that. And they seek to kill him. They even try to kill Lazarus, which I think is hilarious as well. Lazarus is testifying about how he rose again from the dead, and he's testifying about Jesus, and many are believing as a result. They set out to kill Lazarus. I'm thinking, you know, the guy already was raised from the dead once. You know, think about that, folks. In John chapter 11, verses 49, Caiaphas, not knowing that he was being prophetic, stated he's the high priest at the time. It's expedient for you that one man die for the people, that the whole nation not perish. And in this, he, he literally predicts the Lord's death for the people of Israel, and literally, as we understand it, for the world. In John 12, 9 is where we find that they're plotting to kill Lazarus because so many were believing in him. Then we get into Matthew 21, and again, you've got the Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptic gospels. You've got John, which is kind of a, a gospel where I believe John was able to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he began to, to fill in some of the pieces. John's gospel is almost purely evangelistic. It's amazing. These things are written that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. The whole purpose of why John wrote his gospel was to present Christ in such a way that people would be convinced, persuaded that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ. In the midst of it, in Matthew 21, there's the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the donkey, right? And you, you know the picture of the donkey, right? He's not riding a horse, he's riding a donkey. Why is he riding a donkey? Because when a king at that time came in on a donkey, it was because he was declaring peace. See, one day the Lord's going to come back and he's going to ride in on a horse. And that's a whole different story. Everybody's singing, uh, saying, Hosanna, save us now. They had a political perspective of this. Get rid of these Romans. Establish us back into the, to the right state that we should be in. And so they praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. So you have this high. Well, he comes in and for the second time, and by the way, this is the second time, he cleans out the temple. The first time we find it is in John chapter 2. He does this twice. (laughs) It makes me laugh. I'm sorry. But you know Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest and his son-in-law and everything? You know, they're the ones that ran all the sales at the temple. Did you know that? They're, They're the guys making all the money off of the sales of all the stuff. And the Lord comes in and cleans them out twice. Overturns everything. Throws them out. Say, why, why are you making my father's house a place of business? I mean, the boldness of the Lord is awesome. Well, in Matthew 23, we have one of the most detailed teachings of the Lord exposing religious hypocrisy. I mean, the Lord's not here to, to, to win friends and influence the religious leaders. He cleans out the temple for the second time. He knows that he's coming to the end. He knows they're plotting to kill him because of Lazarus. He understands all of this stuff. He recognizes this. But he he launches into some very detailed teachings on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Whitewashed sepulchers. Looking great on the outside, but dead on the in. Boy, don't we need to be careful of that. The Lord exposes them, teaches about this. He teaches in Matthew 24 about his return. He also begins to really clue in to the disciples about the suffering he's to face. In Matthew 26, Judas agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. All these things are taking place. All of these things are in the last days of the Lord on earth before his crucifixion. The disciples gather in the upper room in order to celebrate the Passover. And and here it's where the Lord gives direction for communion. The remembrance of his body, the bread broken for us, or the cup, the blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. In other words, the new covenant. We're going to take a little bit of time to look at that. The new covenant inaugurated by his blood. All four of the Gospels record this. Anytime you see all four of the Gospels recording this or something, you you take real real special attention to that. Judas is told during the, the supper that they have to leave and go do what he's purposed to do. They end up going to the Mount of Olives and then on into Gethsemane where the Lord prays that the cup would be taken from him, not his will, 
but rather the Father's be done. Wow. A couple points of clarity. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it always bothered me that the, the disciples fell asleep. You remember the Lord's praying all night, and he, and he prayed so much, and he was so, in effect, distraught about what he was about to go through. And I, I don't believe it was simply the, the physical pain and the suffering of the crucifixion itself or the beatings and all that kind of stuff. I, I really believe it was a spiritual suffering in many ways because he was going to bear the sin of the world. And so he, he's praying fervently, so much so that he literally was sweating like drops of blood. And, and you can read medical accounts on this. There are times where people can get to a point of, of being so distraught that when you sweat, the, the blood will actually mingle with your sweat and it'll look like you're uh, sweating drops of blood. Well, the disciples fall asleep and the Lord says, what, what do you, you wake up, keep watch with me. Right? Why are you falling asleep? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? And personally, I think that's another example of how the Lord is unique. The fact that he's able to, to pray all night, go through the things that he went through. He was no ordinary man, folks. But it's interesting because in Luke chapter 22, verse 45, there's a little bit of little, little sentence here that I think gives us a bit of an indicator as to why the disciples fell asleep. It wasn't simply that they were tired. They couldn't make it. They didn't care. I don't know if you've ever had that impression, but I, I've always struggled with that a little bit. It seemed like, oh, man, what, guys, come on. But it says in Luke twenty two forty five that they had fallen asleep out of pure exhaustion due to sorrow. To sorrow. They were so distraught that emotionally, they were wiped out. I think that's kind of an interesting clarification, isn't it? Puts it into a little bit of a different perspective, I think. And it's helpful to know that the Lord understands that about us. We can get distraught to the point of being exhausted and wiped out. But I praise the Lord that he is strong and that he's able and he can carry us through. The other point of clarification is Matthew 26 50 and he calls Judas friend <laughs> has that ever have you ever heard that preached in a way where it was like wow look how gracious the Lord is anybody ever heard that now the Lord is clearly gracious but the word friend that he uses of Judas was not buddy it was not phileo it was not my my brother <laughs> It, it literally has the idea of one who has a selfish interest invested in the relationship. What he's saying to Judas and what he's clarifying for all is, Judas, you're acting like my friend because you gave me a kiss on the cheek, but I know you. And you've had a selfish interest invested in me from the time we've been together. And now it's coming to fruition. You've betrayed me. And I know it. Think about that. Just a little tidbit. The Lord knows. The Lord's not mocked. The Lord understands exactly what's going on. And he doesn't candy coat stuff. He's kind in it. But he doesn't candy coat it. 
One last one just for my benefit to you. John 18.10, Peter tries to kill Malchus. Remember Malchus? They all come, they, they all come to get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been praying, and, and here comes Judas. Judas, Judas gives him a, a kiss, gives Jesus a kiss on the cheek, and, and the Lord says to him, friend, meaning you, one who is selfishly invested into this relationship, clarifies it. Peter draws a sword, and, and man, i got to tell you something. We, we look at the uh, denial of Peter, and we kind of go, oh, Peter, what'd you do that for? Do you realize how many soldiers, Roman soldiers, came in order to arrest Jesus? It could have been up to 1,000. When Peter drew that sword, he was signing his own death warrant, folks. And i got to give him kudos for that. Even though it was in the wrong way, and the Lord said, put your sword away. That's not how, that's not how this is going to work. But just (laughs) for a point of clarification, when Peter swung at Malchus, he wasn't trying to chop off his ear. How do you do that? Think about that. I mean, if you're going this way, right, vertically, if you're going that way, you're going to cut arm, you're going to hit limb. No, I think he was trying to get his head. And Malchus was quick, but not quite quick enough. And he ducked. And his ear got taken off. Now, can you imagine standing there? They ask, are you, are you Jesus? And he says, I am. And what happens to all these soldiers? Bam, they fall backwards. I don't know about you folks, but that may have been a clue that this guy's not ordinary. Maybe. Well, how about when he takes Malchus's ear and he puts it back on and heals him right on the spot? Well, what do you think these guys are thinking? You're watching this going, do what? How did that happen? Just points of clarity. <laughs> Three things, the new covenant, the cup, and the crucifixion, okay? The new covenant. The perfect lamb of God paid for the sin of the world. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, we have the inauguration of the new covenant at the last supper with the disciples. In Luke twenty two twenty, 20, says, in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. The word new means qualitatively absolutely brand new. What's he referring to? Well, he's talking about an old covenant. He's talking about the covenant that God had made with Israel. He's talking about the sacrifice of bulls and the sacrifice of animals. He's talking about something that was pointing towards the coming of the Messiah. And here the Lord is saying, that time is now. And the old covenant is done with and the new covenant is being inaugurated. And it is through my blood, not through the animals. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and following, it says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, what's he talking about? The writer's comparing the tabernacle or the temple where it was made with human hands under the direction of God. Why? Because what was seen on this earth is actually a copy of the things in heaven. And the things that are on this earth are temporal. They're pictures. So when they would sacrifice the bulls or or, or the rams or the lambs, 
And they would take the blood of those animals and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. That was a picture. But what does the writer of Hebrews say? He said, Jesus didn't enter into heaven. He didn't enter into the heavens. He didn't enter into the real things with the blood of animals. He went with his own blood in order to make sacrifice, not many times, not over and over and over again, but once for all. Wow. What does it do? Well, it provides us with forgiveness of sin. In Hebrews 9.22, he says, according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Folks, do we catch that? If the Lord didn't go to the cross and shed his blood, give his life. Life is in the blood. If he didn't give his own blood and take his own blood into the heavenlies, there would be no opportunity for forgiveness of sin. None. The new covenant, a new way, a better way, an eternal way, once for all. Jesus didn't have to die multiple times. He died once. He shed his blood once. He offered his blood on the altar in heaven once. So that once for all, it was paid. It was done. There's the new covenant that we have the privilege of walking in. Because when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we're saved, we are cleansed by the blood of Christ himself that deep cleaning work that only God can accomplish in order to purify us and make us holy. But there's also the cup. Now, what cup am I talking about? I'm not talking about the cup at the New Covenant or the Last Supper. I'm talking about the cup that the Lord uh, prayed about in the Garden of Gethsemane, the cup that he, he, he really said to the Father, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass for me. And he says, but not my will. Your will be done. In Isaiah 53, 4, I read it earlier, but he says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He became our sin bearer. He bears our sins to pay for them. And how did he do that? He did it by going to the cross, smitten of God, and afflicted. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, Paul writes, he made him who knew no sin, this is speaking of the Lord, the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that, in order that, for this purpose, we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God in him. We have the opportunity. How do we enter into that? How do we walk in that? We believe. He makes an interesting point here about the Lord. He made him, the Father made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now, what does that mean? Have you wrestled with that? Does it mean that Jesus became evil for us? No, he just says he knew no sin. What he's saying is that the sin of the world was placed upon him. He becomes our sin bearer. You know, they had a picture of this in the Old Testament. They would have a goat. It was called a scapegoat. 
And they would put their hands on this scapegoat and they would make sacrifice and this goat was alive and they would put their hands, the high priest would put his hands on this goat once a year and then that goat would go off into the wilderness. And it was a picture that all the sin of the nation was placed upon this animal and off it went. All the sin of the world is placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ because he alone is able to bear it, to pay for it. And he does so at the cross by shedding his own blood. The Grace New Testament commentary says this, Jesus knew no sin, but God put our sin on him. God did all of this through Jesus so that we might become the righteousness righteousness of God in him. We would be declared righteous. When? When we believe. When we say yes. When we receive the payment that he made on our behalf. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. In Luke chapter 22, verses 41 and 42, in the garden, Luke records this. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, the disciples. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What cup? The cup that he had to drink in order to pay for the sin of the world, where the sin of the world was placed upon him, and he made sacrifice for each and every one of us. Past, present, future. All sin, all time, placed upon him at the cross. And he paid for it all. Wow. What does he say? Yet not my will, but yours be done. Oh, man. We have a new covenant. The Lord paid for our sin. He drank that cup. He bore our sin at the cross so that we might be declared the righteousness of God when we believe Well, where did it all take place? I would suggest to you it took place at the cross, the crucifixion. Folks, I don't know if you've thought a lot about the crucifixion. It's difficult to think about it. When we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, we talk about him being the glory of God. What do we mean by glory? Glory. What do we mean by glory? See, a lot of times we, t- we tend to think of glory as the Shekinah glory of God, and certainly that's a part of it. He dwells in unapproachable light, right? Or the transfiguration where light began to emanate from him. There wasn't a spotlight placed upon him. He is light, and light began to emanate from him. And so we, we call that the glory of God, And there's absolute truth in that. But understand this, when we talk about glory, what we're really talking about is the correct identity of somebody. In other words, how we truly think of them. The truth of who they really are. At the transfiguration, they got a glimpse of the truth of who he really is. When we talk about Christ, he limited himself. He didn't stop being God. But he limited himself to one place and one time. He submitted to the Father even though he's equal to the Father. Everything he did was out of his initiative, not out of his own. Except, we're told by John, that the one thing that the Lord did out of his own initiative was to go to the cross. 
he laid down his life of his own free accord. Think about that. The father didn't make him do it. But the son said, I'll submit and I'll do it. We talk about the crucifixion. Jesus hanging on a cross. What we have is a picture of the greatest expression of the true identity of who God really is. The worst of man. The greatest of God. Man putting the Lord of glory on the cross. Abusing him. Not recognizing that he's the perfect spotless lamb of God. But God going willingly to the cross so that man might recognize the true reality of who he really is. Did he suffer at the cross? Absolutely. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was betrayed, the Lord was brought before the Sanhedrin, He was then taken to Pilate, who sent him to Herod, finally back to Pilate, who ultimately gave him over to be crucified. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 67, he's before Caiaphas, the high priest. He was beaten and he was slapped. He was mocked because he had declared the truth about himself to be the son of God. They considered it blasphemy. And so the religious leaders, catch this, the religious leaders begin to persecute the Lord of glory in order to make sure that ultimately he's crucified. Once Pilate washes his hands, he's condemned to die as a criminal. And he's given to the Roman soldiers who torture him, ultimately leading him to Golgotha where he's crucified. And in Matthew chapter 27, verses 26 and following, we we have some details in this. He was scourged with a Roman whip. Now, folks, this is one of those things. It's gory. It's almost inhuman. Most prisoners, many prisoners, didn't even make it through the scourging. The Lord's already been beaten. The Lord's already been mistreated. The Lord's already had things done to him that would have worn him out. He was up all night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's exhausted at this point. And they scourge him. Do you understand what that is? It's not just one whip with, you know, on the back. We're talking about, in effect, a, a cat of nine. We don't know how many exact thongs were with this whip, but it's a short little stick with a whole bunch of different thongs coming off of it, and they would attach bone or they'd put glass at the end of it, sharp instruments, so that when this hit you, it ripped. And it wasn't just the back, it would, it would wrap around the front. This was a gruesome torture that many prisoners never were even able to live through. I won't get into all the gory details, but let me, let me just say this. If you read medical reports on this, there were times where prisoners having this take place, you could actually see their internal organs. 
You could see the inside because everything was being ripped off. The Lord had his beard pulled from his face. The Lord had a crown of thorns placed upon his head and was beaten over and over again on the head with thorns. His face, his body, his legs. He was so mangled that you would not even have recognized him. That's the suffering of our Lord. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this. And I'm not going to break fellowship on this. But I want to tell you something. I believe Satan did everything he could to keep the Lord from going to the cross. Satan knew scripture. Satan understood why the Lord had come. He could read Isaiah. He quoted scripture at the temptation of Christ. I believe the demonic oppression, the demonic attack, we're told that the entire Italian cohort came out to abuse Christ. That's a thousand individuals mocking him, slapping him, hitting him, beating him. I believe Satan did everything he could to make sure Jesus died before he got to the cross. And folks, this is no ordinary man. He's the God-man, and he set his face as flint to go to that cross. And I believe theologically it is absolutely accurate to state that he was thinking about every one of us going to that cross. Because he knew that if he didn't get there, and if he wasn't hung on that cross, he wouldn't fulfill scripture. The payment would not be made. But he went to that cross, and no man, was going to stop him. Think about that. The crucifixion itself is brutal. They nailed his wrists, and I believe it is the wrists. There's two bones in your wrists where they would have driven the nails through to place him on the wooden beam, and then they would have driven through his feet in order to hang him there. When people died on the cross, it was normally because they couldn't breathe anymore. They didn't have enough strength to push themselves back up to get a a, a breath of air. It was cruel. It was meant to be. And the Lord went through this for us. I love how the Lord reveals himself at the cross. In Luke 23, 34, it says, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Wow. Folks, the Lord is amazing, isn't he? Think about that. Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In 1 Peter 2, 23, Peter tells us, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself to the Father, even in the midst of all this suffering. The testimony of the centurion that is watching in Matthew 27, 54. The centurion is watching this crucifixion. Undoubtedly, he's watched many of them. And he says this, truly, this was the Son of God. 
In Mark 15, 39, we're given a little bit of a picture on that. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Breathed his last. What did the Lord do? Right before he gave up his spirit. In Luke chapter 23, verses 46 and following, Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. No ordinary human being hanging on that cross, folks. It's the God-man. It's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who went there in order to bear our sin so that we might be declared the righteousness of God when we believe in him. When we see Jesus on the cross and we begin to picture him beaten beyond recognition, not even being able to recognize that this is Jesus. We see the greatest depiction of the glory, the identity of God given to man. Why? Because we learn something about God in this moment that ought to impact every one of us forever. And it is that God is love. God is love. He didn't do this for himself. It was completely and absolutely for us. He didn't do this because he had to. He laid down his own life. He did it out of his own initiative. We have John and John 3.16 as well as writing in 1 John 3.16. The true motive of God seen at the cross which is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. One of a a kind, unique son that whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. In 1 John 3.16, we know love by this. And that word know means we come to experience it. We come to recognize this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren for one another. Because if we're rightly related with with the Lord, then God's character is going to begin to be seen through us. And we will begin to love others. Why? Because love is the fruit of the Spirit. Love is who God is. When we see God on the cross, we see the true identity of who he really is, and that is love. See, every time in our lives, when we begin to doubt God's motive... Have you ever been through a circumstance where you start to wonder, where is God? Lord, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Oh, go back to the cross. Because there, the true expression of his motive should make an indelible permanent mark on every one of us forever. And that is that his motive is love. No other. When he is working in our lives and we don't understand it, Go back to the cross and know that God is love. His word of truth to us. Have you ever doubted the word of God? Have you ever wondered whether the word of God was really true? 
go back to the cross and know that God's motive for each and every one of us was depicted there in a way that ought to change us forever. And it is love. His will for us. You worry about what, what you want. You worry about where you're going. You're worried about what's happening in your life. You're wondering what the will of God is for you. Go back to the cross. Maybe God isn't on your timetable, my timetable, in order to make certain things clear to us. And so we begin to doubt. We begin to worry. We begin to get all upset. <laughs> Go back to the cross. And look at Jesus hanging on that cross, and be reminded that he loves you and he loves me. And that changes everything. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.